Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books Network podcast. Uh, I'm Benjamin Phillips. I'll be your host today. Uh, Joining me is, well, a baby asleep on my chest who hopefully you will not hear throughout the recording. Uh, But who you will hear from is uh, Dr. Kyle Gervais, Dr. Randy Pogorzelski, and uh, PhD candidate Sarah Gramshanesi, who have joined us today to discuss their new uh, work in the Brill series on Lucan and Flavian Epic. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Good to be here, Benjamin. Thank you. Uh, it was good to have you guys. Good to to read your book and this um, bracing introduction to these poems and to the scholarship surrounding them over the last com- coming on a hundred years now since kind of C.S. Lewis first heralding, "Hey, you should actually read these guys." Um, back in the day, um, tell us about about this project and how it got started, if you could. How do you want to start us off? I, I, I will start us off because I think I started this off, actually. this um, I was asked to uh, write this book um, in the grand tradition of academia. Someone uh, more senior to me was asked to write it first and didn't have time for it and said, but maybe Kyle will do it. And I said, actually, that does sound like a really cool project, but I don't want to do it on my own because uh, uh, Lucan and Flavian Epic is a it's a large topic, and uh, my my specialty is is stagious in particular. But uh, Randy Pogorzelski down the hallway from me at Western um, uh, has some brilliant thoughts on on uh, Lucan and Silas in particular, and so we kind of started on the project together. And then a little way uh, in, uh, uh, a uh, former PhD uh, uh, MA student of ours, now PhD Sarah, um, we brought her on board uh, first as a research assistant, um, and then she was doing such good work on uh, Valerius in particular that we said, hey, do you want to be a co-author? Um, and that's kind of how the gang all got together and um, and the project uh, got going. Yeah, very good. Uh, congratulations on getting a, a co-author title before the doctorate. That's a, a dream for jumping into the job market. Thank you. Yeah, it's definitely an amazing opportunity. And working with Kyle and Randy is always a great time. So. Yeah, very good. Um, so... This grouping of poets, uh, the the successor poets after Ovid, uh, why you mentioned in the beginning, they're not usually all grouped together or the subject of common study. Why have you guys chosen to lump these these four? Randy, you probably have some smart, smart things to say about that. I don't know about smart things, but I have things to say about uh, about this kind of issue. I mean, the, there are, I think, a couple of reasons why we are interested in this particular grouping. Some of them we, we talk about a little bit in the introduction to the book, um, mm-hmm. and that is that 
you know, when you think about the sort of the the big time scale of Latin epic, there's a very tight grouping of these four epic poets whose work survives to us, uh, Lucan and Valerius Flaccus and Statius and Silius Italicus. Um, and the there there's a bit of space before Lucan between Ovid and Lucan, and there's there's quite a lot of space after Silius Italicus and and then the the next Latin epic poet whose work comes down to us, uh, Claudian. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the the first reason I think to to group these together is that sort of uh, that uh, just chronological. Uh, set that, mm. that they are close together. I think it's also true that they have this uh, this common thread in their reception histories, where uh, Roman epic from the imperial period, post-Augustan Roman epic, that is uh, the these poems, uh, these or these five poems or, or four epic poets, um, have a, a sort of shared history of being admired in antiquity and then at some point losing that admiration and being denigrated for a long time and then in the late 20th and early 21st centuries being redeemed to be you know good poets uh, and so that common thread is something that that encourages grouping the study of of these poets and these poems together um it is uh, I, I also just a, a practical issue that you know Kyle mentioned that we got started on this project when uh, when someone from Brill uh, approached him to to work on the project, which means that as a practical consideration, we have the the series of research perspectives in classical poetry to consider, um, and this was a, a sort of a space in that series where there was room for a a, a book to sort of uh, complete the coverage or, or fill out the coverage that, that that series works on. So there's a sort of practical consideration of what's needed for the series, as well as a more academic or intellectual consideration of the, the tight chronological grouping and the common reception histories of these poems. Yeah, very good. Um, so speaking of these poems, we here at the Newbricks Network, as, we, as we've discussed, uh, we kind of have two potential audiences, one of people who are invested in these poems already and looking to ser- looking for the next scholarship on it. Uh, and some people, I imagine, who are clicking on this because they see Epic, they've read the Aeneid, maybe they have Ovid on their shelves, and they want to hear about the rest. So if you guys could just quickly introduce to us um, who these poets are and what their poems are, just beginning with Lucan um, being the first in time, uh, Dr. Korgazowski. Sure. Yeah. So uh, as Kyle mentioned, I wrote the the first draft of our chapter on Lucan. I do want to emphasize that the the whole book was a, a collaborative project, and you know we 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 have all worked on every part. But um, it is true that I, I think Kyle brought me onto the project in part because I I have some expertise and I've I've done some work before on historical epic, um, that is Lucan and Silius Italicus in the in this period of of Rome. Roman epic poetry. So it makes sense for me to talk a little bit about Lucan. Um, he was a, a, a poet of the Neronian period. Um, he, he was a, a nephew of uh, Seneca, Seneca the, the Younger. Um, and he was sort of in the high circles of power when Seneca was an advisor to, to Nero. Um, he was uh, he was raised very near the court with Nero uh, and uh, and was was very similar in age to Nero. They were friends and they were in the same sort of writing group together. Uh, at some point, uh, the the biographical tradition tells us that that relationship went sour. But for a long time, uh, Lucan was the the sort of um, you know friend and and court poet of the the Neronian period. Um, he uh, he was extraordinarily prolific. He wrote all kinds of stuff. We only have his his, uh, his epic poem that survives. His poem that's sometimes called Pharsalia, sometimes called the Bellum Civile, or a, a poem on the civil war between Caesar and and Pompey, um, and uh, it, it's um, uh, it, it it's a, a poem that uh, is both in the tradition of Roman historical epic. That is, it's an epic poem that's not on a mythological topic, but uh, a um, 
uh, a poem about historical events. Um, it, it also is worth contextualizing it in the larger epic. So uh, I think one of the great uh, sort of themes in scholarship on Lucan's poem is that it is a response to Virgil's Aeneid. It is very much uh, post-Virgilian. Uh, some scholars have called it an anti-Aeneid. Uh, so if uh, the Aeneid is a, a poem that is largely about the Augustine project and has lots to say, uh, it is uh, if the Aeneid is, is overtly positive and possibly covertly negative about the Augustine project, Lucan's poem is kind of the other way. It right. is uh, it is a poem that casts Caesar as a, a tyrant and a villain and is in many ways overtly negative about Caesarism. And yet there are ways in which the poem is also subtly very positive about uh, about Caesar and the the sort of the the big charisma and power that that he had. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Lucan was extraordinarily prolific and wrote lots of, uh, of poetry. Um, when things went wrong with his relationship with Nero, they, they went very wrong. Uh, he was implicated in the so-called Pisonian conspiracy to assassinate Nero and was uh, was made to to commit suicide. Um, and so uh, you know he, he he died quite young, but he he left us this uh, this poem that is is uh, exuberant and uh, and uh, sort of carries us away with its its energy in the same way as the character Caesar sort of carries away the Roman world with his energy. Right. Um, I, I could keep going forever, but I think maybe there are other authors who could use a little time as well. There are, including a, a much less well-known one uh, in, in Valerius Flaccus. Um, yeah, yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah, I have nowhere near the <laughs> amount to say as, as Randy does on that. Um, mostly because it's we just don't have it. Um, so very little remains of Valerius Flaccus's biography. We just really don't know that much about who he was or who he was friends with, um, or all, all those things. Um, Quintilian in the 90s, uh, after Valerius dies, says uh, we've recently lost much in Valerius Flaccus, so um, he he offers that little obituary. So we know that he had uh, influence among influential uh, Roman authors, but uh, we don't have a lot more than that. Um, and he pretty much disappears after that in in terms of overt references that we have a lot of uh, of work on. Um, but his epic, which is the only remaining uh, text of his that we have, his epic, the Argonautica, um, is a retelling of Apollonius's Argonautica, the story of Jason um, and the Argonauts um, as they go on their journey for the, for the Golden Fleece. Um, and that epic is, um, it, it has a lot more uh, modeled on Virgil. Mm -hmm. um then um it, it kind of follows in Virgil's footsteps a bit more um and it is often divided into a two-pronged uh epic uh structure where the first the first half is uh, a more positive and heroic uh progression of Jason's journey um and the second half is seen um as a little bit more uh pessimistic or tragic um right. almost um, and that is reflected in both the structure of the narrative as well as uh, Jason's own characterization. Right. Um, so yeah, well, that's I think what I have. Sorry. Pardon? Uh, not terribly unlike uh, the the two divisions of the Aeneid. Times can be cast as precisely. Them, right. Precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. Uh, and then, the, although Valerius's was lost right until. Until the the, the Renaissance, uh, Statius stayed along for a long time, and some people might have met him in Dante already before this. But why don't you tell us about that, Doctor Gervais? Yeah, yeah, exactly. If you know, uh, if you're from outside of classics and you know a epic poet after Ovid, it might be it might be Statius. You know, uh, especially mm -hmm. thanks to his cameo or fairly long cameo in Dante. Uh, yeah, he was uh, kicking around uh, uh, right from the beginning. Um, uh, I personally think he's got the most fun stories. Uh, his Thebaid is about the sons of Oedipus, uh, 
Oedipus who accidentally kills his father and marries his mother, and then things just keep going bad. Um, uh, his sons end up fighting uh, to the death for their father's throne, and and the Thebaid is is the, uh, the 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 long story of that. Uh, of that uh, disastrous uh, civil war uh, at Thebes, um, and then the Achilleid, a much shorter poem. It's a fragmentary poem because it probably uh, was cut off by Statius's death. is about the early days of Achilles' life, and in particular, uh, the episode of him uh, cross-dressing on the island of Skyros. His mother hides him there uh, from the Trojan War, and he cross-dresses uh, 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 there, and and um, and uh, falls in love with the king's daughter, and then he's is uh, eventually found out by uh, Ulysses and Diomedes. Um, we're doing biographies, right? So Statius, uh, Publius Papinius Statius, uh, but until uh, for the Middle Ages, until 1417, uh, you knew him as Papinius Statius Circulus, who was a teacher of rhetoric from Toulouse, uh, and then. Uh, so, I mean, one of our themes in this book is the reception histories of these authors, and they almost all of them have sort of a moment in the Renaissance uh, with Valerius and Silius. It's their rediscovery uh, with Statius. It is the rediscovery of a third set of poems he wrote, the Silvi, which are a lot of them are autobiographical. And that was when the modern or, or the post um, classical world learned that he was, in fact, not a French uh, teacher of rhetoric, but a a, um, a courtier of Domitian, a professional poet who spent a lot of time sucking up to Domitian and uh, lived in uh, uh, Naples and was sort of uh, bicultural in terms of uh, Latin and Greece. And that was actually the beginning of the decline of Statius' uh, or, or repu uh, reputation. Um, uh, because we we are suspicious of people who fawn over emperors, and uh, we are, for uh, even less good reasons, uh, suspicious of people who come from the south and the east. So there's an interesting um, there's an interesting sort of story about Statius's uh, reception uh, based on that. Uh, in terms of the epic themselves, uh, uh, they I mean I think people come for the myths because they're quite interesting, and they stay at least for my money for the for the intertextuality. So I think of all of these four poets, and I'm very biased, I love Statius, but of all of these four poets, he makes most skillful use of his predecessors. Um, uh, uh, certainly people like Virgil, uh, Ovid, uh, Lucan, which is why it's exciting that we can do this book with these authors together, um, but a whole range of uh, Greek authors, other Latin authors. And one of the really exciting things about all of these authors is most of the models that they are working with uh, still survive uh, largely intact. And so we can see in detail sort of the, the skilled way they, they work with their models and change them and appropriate them and twist them and things like that. Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell, I guess, what Statius is and his epics. Oh, and you are muted, Ben. Benjamin. Oops, thank you. Uh, and the Thibayad, if if I'm not mistaken, is the only one of these epics that survives in its entirety, right? It is It is resolutely complete. Uh, like uh, the uh, Ovid's Metamorphoses, uh, it ends with a... Um, it ends with an epilogue declaring that I have completed this poem, mm -hmm. um, declaring sort of worryingly that uh, the emperor has read it and loved it, uh, and the emperor in question is Domitian, who, like Nero, is one of the bad emperors. Um, right. But yeah, it, it, it is a rarity um, uh, among ancient epics for being complete. And that's another interesting thing with this project, right, because we're also dealing with very incomplete epics, uh, Lucan, Valerius Flaccus, and the Accolade, which breaks off in the middle of a book. So right. we get to see sort of different different modes of, of, um, of writing, I guess. Yeah. If I can interrupt for a second, Silas's Punica is also apparently complete. It, yeah. it is complete. Yeah. Uh, and it's also yeah. the longest, uh, right? Go ahead. It, it is. It is quite long. Um, uh, it, and uh, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I, I can take over and start talking about uh, Silius. Some people like to say Silius Italicus, but, you know, I, I prefer to anglicize it as as Silius. Um, the, the epic that we have written by Silius Italicus is the Punica. It's a historical epic on um, the the uh, the Second Punic War, the, the war against Hannibal. Um, and it is quite long. I'm, I'm, um, uh, uh, it is what 17 books. Yeah. Uh, so, and, and it, that 17 is a, is an odd number. And we've just been talking about the, the complete state of poems and you might think, well, if it's 17 books, surely, you know, he, he was planning on writing some more and, and that's probably incomplete. Um, and you know, it, 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 when you have 17 books, you can struggle to divide a poem as we often divide epics into sort of groupings of three books or four books, or even to divide it in half between, you know, a, a first half and a second half. We've already talked about, um, the Aeneid being divided into to two halves and, and, uh, and Valerius's Argonautica sort of uh, potentially being a, a sort of um, a, a two a poem of two halves, I think. Um, uh, one uh, interesting point that that has been made about seventeen books uh, is that it is the total number of books that Virgil wrote that survived. So if you add up the the twelve books of the Aeneid and the four books of Georgics and the 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 eclogues, you get seventeen books. Um, and Silius Italicus was reportedly a, a huge fan of Virgil. We can see that in his poetry and also in the biographical tradition um, that he was was devoted to Virgil. So it's conceivable that that that's a a, a reason for 17 books. Um, but, you know, it, it doesn't show any obvious signs of, of incompletion. It comes to a satisfying conclusion. The final book is about the, the same length as the others. So it's, uh, it, it is, I, I think, a, a complete poem. Um, right. So we have been talking a little about biography of these authors. Uh, Silas Italicus was a Roman senator. He was, in fact, a, a consular, so he he had been a consul. His political career was largely under Nero, um, and this didn't stop him from, you know, being uh, a reasonable success in the Flavian period and uh, and writing this enormously long epic poem on the the Second Punic War. Um, like all of our other authors, uh, Silius makes good use of his predecessors. And I think this is a, a point that I want to emphasize, something that Kyle brought up, that these are poems for whom a lot of models and predecessors are still extant for us to see. Um, uh, uh, it, the point has been made in the past that the this period, the the Neronian and Flavian periods are the 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 periods in which the Augustan period became classical, in which uh, uh, poets made use of the Augustan poets as real models. So unlike lots of other classical poetry, we we can see exactly how the these uh, Neronian and Flavian poets are making use of their predecessors and receiving the the work of earlier poets. And I, I think that's really interesting. And it's something that, that Silius does a lot. He had a reputation in antiquity um, uh, for uh, for writing very uh, elusive poetry. I think, however, that, you know, at least for me, uh, the Silius's poetry is, uh, is a sort of a pleasure to read, partly because despite the fact that it is really elusive and makes good use of its predecessors, it is at least superficially really straightforward. It's it's kind of easy to understand what Silius is saying um, in a way that more mannerist poets, and I would put Statius in this category, are, are not super easy to understand. Um, so, you know, it, it, Silius uh, is, at least on the surface, very accessible in a way that someone like Statius or Valerius Flaccus, for that matter, is, is, is not that accessible. Now, 
often in Latin poetry, that kind of accessibility is an illusion. So we see that kind of thing in Lucan. Um, I think a, a particularly famous example is Catullus, where it gives us the impression of being really open and spontaneous and everybody can understand exactly what's going on. But when you dig a little deeper, you see that Catullus is actually very sort of deliberate and careful and detailed in the way that he writes poetry. And uh, and, and there's a there's a lot that you can dig into. And I think the same thing is, is true for Silius Italicus. Uh, I think as a as a way of introducing Silius and talking about the sort of overall shape of the book that we've written on Lucan and Flavian epic, the it, it's it's worth pointing out that Silius is, I think, the purest example of the kind of reception history that we think links these these poems and poets. Uh, Silius, who was relatively highly regarded in antiquity, uh, enough that his poetry survived, just barely was lost for a long time, but, you know, did, did survive, um, was denigrated for a very long time as the, the worst of all Roman epic poets. Um, and you can see this even up through the late 20th century, people talking about just how bad Silius's poetry is. And then, you know, last of all in the last of all these poets in the in the 21st century, now we can see that people are saying, no, actually, Silius is really good and we should appreciate the the merits of Silius. And so for us, for us, I think it's a it's a an example of the the um, the 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 reason why we wanted to sort of historicize and contextualize that history to, to try to understand what is it about these poems that made that sort of common story go go along because i think you know for me at least it was my thinking about silius and my my sort of uh, earlier readings and 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 work about Silius that helped me to see that this was an interesting area of focus for for working on these poets. Well, you've set up the transition beautifully. Um, so thank you for for summarizing all of these. But explain uh, th th there is this narrative of redemption. Uh, you know, as we mentioned earlier and uh, mentioning throughout, you know, the thirties. Lewis is saying, read Luke and Stasius. You have your occasional oddball um, promoting them as well. Um, but t tell us about how these get get picked up and in the age of the companion and everything. Now, now they're now they're popular again. So I might jump in on that. Um, and I think, I mean, Lucan was quote unquote redeemed first, and it's kind of interesting that these have gone more or less in chronological order. Um, uh, Statius is the one I always like to talk about. Um, and actually, one of the interesting things uh, about working on this project with Randy in particular is he is very suspicious of these sort of redemption narratives and very interested in the reception as a reception, uh, as an object of study in itself. Uh, I started working on Statius just kind of at the tail end of when scholars were really motivated by that um, narrative. And uh, my supervisor, for instance, Bill Dominic, uh, was one of the people in sort of really the first modern generation of redeeming Statius. And, and, and a lot of their work was really motivated and animated by saying, no, Statius, in fact, is not a bad author. Statius is a good author. Um, and uh, Randy would therefore say, you know, Kind of buying into that narrative, which which is which is a, a narrative and not necessarily a real thing. Um, but for all of these authors, I think um, as a function of being later than someone like Virgil, um, and as a function of more than one of them sort of saying with false modesty that they are not as good as someone like Virgil, um, and as a function of making obvious reuse of previous poetry that we have, uh, all of this um, encouraged scholars to see them as coming late to the party, admitting they're not as good as their predecessors, and just sort of shamelessly copying um, uh, their predecessors. Um, and then I think you're, you're talking there, Benjamin, but you're muted. Go, go right ahead. Yeah. Um, sort of in the, well, really begin like, you know, in the later part of the 20th century, but certainly towards the end of the 20th, 20th century, uh, we talk about 
uh, a confluence of a few different events, um, uh, postmodern thinking, which is suspicious of things like canons and more open to things outside of, you know, maybe the Homeric Virgilian canon, um, uh, new technologies that uh, especially databases that allow you to search for textual similarities between poems uh, allowed scholars to um, dramatically open up the number of potential uh, potential elusive links between authors mm -hmm. and just appreciate how incredibly rich the engagement of these later authors are with someone like Virgil. Right. Um, and there's two other things. Oh, a bunch more people getting PhDs in classics uh, than there were in earlier times. And therefore, you know, Virgilian studies or Ovidian studies or Homeric studies were getting crowded and people were sort of looking further afield. What was mm. the last thing, Randy? You had four things. Uh, it, it was that that critical mass um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The pressure to go to other poets, but kind of frameworks for being able to do so. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Or, or, uh, work on earlier, more sort of poets, more central to the canon uh, gave, and especially for authors like uh, Valerius Flaccus and Silius, who did not have a reception history at all until the modern period, there were just no no tools in the toolbox to understand them. And so being able to borrow and adapt tools from scholarship on earlier authors, which mm -hmm. is sort of a pleasant, um, pleasant parallel to the authors themselves, borrowing and adapting from earlier authors, all of that suddenly gave the tools and the impetus to start working on these poets uh, more seriously and more deeply. Um, mm -hmm. And Randy in particular, I think, would emphasize that we did not therefore suddenly discover that these poets are good, um, uh, just aesthetically, whereas we used to think they're bad, incorrectly, but we sort of discovered complexities and richness in them that allowed us to appreciate them um, in a deeper and more subtle level. Yeah. All right, so you even say at one point in the introduction that they've kind of, they've become good because we need them to. Can you unpack that for us a little bit, um, Dr. Booker Uh Yeah, I mean, I, I I can jump in and talk about this a little bit. I I think, you know, when Kyle was just talking now about how uh, having a sort of uh, a theoretical model or approach that was developed for reading Virgil available mm -hmm. to adapt to read someone like Silius Italicus, who does not have the the sort of history of people reading his poetry that that Virgil does, is really helpful. And and that reminds me of a, a story from when I was a graduate student when I I was first learning about Silius Italicus, and and well, one of my classmates was saying, you know, I'm going to write a dissertation about Silius Italicus because because almost nobody writes on Silius. So I can, you know, it'll be easy to find something original to say. Whereas if I was going to write about the Aeneid, there's a million people writing about Virgil. And, you know, how can how can I come up with anything that hasn't already been said before? You know, and the idea being that it's sort of easier to write something that is impactful and original about an author that doesn't get a lot of attention. For the same reason someone might say, I want to write on Valerius Flaccus's Argonaut rather than on Statius's the the by you know that there's there's sort of space and and I understand that but I think that can be really difficult too sometimes it's easier to write about the the Aeneid uh, as I wrote my dissertation about the Aeneid because there's a, a big conversation to jump into and because you know when you say something even slightly interesting about the Aeneid other people are interested because the Aeneid is you know kind of a, a at least in classical circles these days the Aeneid is a bigger deal than than say Silius's Punica um, and so it can be really it can be really challenging to um, to to try to find a foothold hold in authors like Silius Italicus uh, or Valerius Flaccus, and to a lesser extent, Lucan and Statius, it can be challenging to find a foothold and, and something to, to work on. And this is part of the reason why I think... Sorry, go ahead. I was saying no footnotes to get angry at and, and write about. 
Yeah. 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 No, no, no footnotes to get angry at. No sort of no arguments to stake a position in. No, nothing to, to, to jump into. Um, and so I, you know, I have always found it easier to write on the, the more, the more covered and more talked about authors. Um, and that I think is a demonstration the, of a, a point that reception studies as a field has made to us, which is that works become more readable the more they are read. Uh, the, the There's more to say about something when other people have had lots to say about it before. Um, and so, you know, it becomes possible for us in the 21st century to write about these authors as more of us are writing about these authors. It becomes easier and more interesting. Uh, it becomes easier to find publication venues. It becomes easier to have people think that something that you have to say about these authors is significant. It becomes easier to find interesting things to say about these authors because you can bounce off other people's ideas and you don't have to sort of come up with everything from, from the beginning. And so this is, this is why I say that now in you know in, in this moment, it's not that we can suddenly appreciate that these poets are, you know, are good poets and these poems are are good poems, so much as the the fact of us turning to them and reading them and having a discussion with each other about these poems is what makes them readable, is what makes them interesting. It's what makes them good to work with. And I, I can't resist jumping in because I, I just love the parallels between the scholarship and the authors themselves. I, I, I mean, something that uh, until the sort of redemption of all of these authors, something that scholars were really fighting against is this impression that if you uh, come into a crowded field, as Lucan and Statius and all of these people did, there's nothing left to say. Um, and uh, the, the the point that Randy has been making is, is that in the scholarship, it's exactly the opposite. The more crowded the field, the richer the conversations you can have. And and modern uh, studies on the intertextuality of these poems make exactly the same point. The fact that Statius and, and Lucan and all the others had so much coming before them allowed them to say so much more than the, if they had been writing in sort of a pristine state of, of, of you know, uh, writing in a vacuum. We kind of stopped feeling the anxiety of influence for them. And... Exactly. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So how, how has that sea change like borne out in the interpretation of these poems? Like, but what are some of the new interpretive questions that these have, that, that this has generated for these poems? Oh boy. This is where we have the editing because I got to think for a second. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, uh, so one question we're still, I still don't think we've seen the end of is the old question of, that was borrowed from Virgilian scholarship of um, pro and anti-imperial uh, uh, readings. Um, and that uh, that animated a lot of early scholarship. I think I think on all, all four of these authors, Mm -hmm. um, and there are a number of scholars that will say that's a pretty tired debate now, and let's open it up in different directions. Um, one one area that I find particularly exciting in all of the authors is uh, the intersection between socio socio political readings of the poems and literary readings of the poems. So some of the some of the coolest interpretations I've seen are talking about things like. Um, how the Roman world had changed politically and culturally in the Neronian or the Flavian era compared to, say, the Augustan period, and how uh, all of these poets um, uh, sort of explore those changes in part by exploring their relationship with earlier authors. So, you know, um, Statius might say that uh, 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 my Thebaid is sort of different than the Aeneid, both in a literary sense and in a sense that it's being written in a different socio-political uh, milieu. So um, uh, I've got others, I think. Um, Randy, Sarah, jump in. Yeah, that's, that's very interesting. Yeah, I I definitely want to give space to to Sarah to say something about questions about Valerius Flaccus, yes. but while she thinks about that, uh, I I may say some some things. I, I you know despite the fact that that 
that I I feel like I feel tempted to talk forever about Lucan. I I actually think maybe talking about Silius is is a little more interesting in this regard, just because it, it, the the new directions are newer in Silius. So of course you know as Kyle says one of the the first things that people do when they try to tackle a, a Roman epic poet is the question of whether the poet is you know supportive of the emperor or not. But I think that that you know it, it is true that that scholarship on on all these poets has sort of moved beyond that question both in terms of more nuanced versions of political readings of the poem uh, poems but also um more sort of just uh, uh, ways to appreciate these epics that are not explicitly political in that way. Um, so one of the the ways that that people have recently approached Silius's poem is to talk about the issue of exemplarity, uh, which is to say that the the poem offers us a lot of figures who are both positive and negative models, um, and so uh, in. in in this uh, in this poem uh, uh, about the war against Hannibal, um, uh, Hannibal is a, a sort of uh, interesting model. He is a kind of you know anti-hero, uh, and sometimes uh, Romans can be assimilated to Hannibal or divorced from Hannibal. There is a fight in the poem over the legacy of Hercules. Hannibal thinks that he is a new Hercules, but also Scipio thinks that that he is a, a new Hercules, um, and the question of who gets to sort of uh, to to claim the inheritance of the past is a really interesting one for me. So much of authority and power relations and politics in the present is about who gets to tell the story of the past and who gets to to claim the authority of the past. And one of the ways that Silius's poem does that is through these exemplary figures. So uh, one of the 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 first monographs in a long time uh, on Silius's Punica was. Uh, Ben Tipping's exemplary epic about exemplarity in, in the poem, and I think that's been uh, that's been really nuanced in interesting ways. Um, so we we talk about sort of the way that Silius uses the Virgilian model of this sort of dual inheritance or dual exemplarity, where a, a mo where two figures uh, take over or compete for a model or uh, a a a. a a later figure is sort of influenced by two different models, and this happens in the in Silius all the time. Another, I think, really interesting thing that people have argued recently about Silius is uh, that Silius uh, and and I associate this in particular with with what Bob Cowan has called side shadowing, like foreshadowing, but but side shadowing. Silius is he seems to be really interested in what we might call or what people these days call counterfactual history. What would have happened if this hadn't uh, been this way? If it hadn't been for Hannibal, would we have still had this war? If it hadn't been for, you know, Scipio, would things have come out the same way? Um, and, and sort of exploring those alternative historical paths in a way that allows him to think about whether it's people or larger historical forces. I associate that sort of question with with Tolstoy, you know, that, that if there hadn't been Napoleon, would things have come out the same way in that war. And Silius is interested in those questions too. And I think that's a, a really interesting way to the to to read the poem. So um the, there are these sort of new directions that are coming out in ways that both adapt older models of reading, like this question of exemplarity, and also develop sort of new ways of reading Roman poetry, like this uh, issue of counterfactual history or, or side shadowing. And, and uh, I just one last point that I would make about this is that I think it's, it's super interesting to think about the question of civil war in the, the Punica, um, because you know, this is a book on Lucan and Flavian epic. The title suggests that uh, that we are interested in the relationship between the Flavian epic poets and their predecessor Lucan. We could characterize this uh, the, these poets as the the epic successors of Lucan. And so, even though the Second Punic War is very much not a, a civil war, uh, because you know it is against the Carthaginians, the great enemies, there are all kinds of ways in which the Punica characterizes that Second Punic War as a civil war and uses it to. Explain 
explore the sort of civil wars that Rome had experienced uh, both leading up to and in the Flavian period. One of those is simply a program of allusions to, to Lucan. One that's really interesting to me is thinking about what it must be like for a reader in the Flavian period where Carthage is a major Roman city and almost a sort of second Rome to read about a war between Rome and Carthage as though Carthage were this great foreign enemy. And it very much isn't anymore. If the if the Punic Wars had been fought in the Flavian period, they would have been civil wars. Um, and so reading this sort of foreign war as civil is something that I think is, uh, uh, is is another interesting new direction in in ways to read the Punica. Fascinating. So I've gathered a whole grab bag of future directions, but we've been threatening that Sarah was going to talk a bit. <laughs> threatening, yes, indeed. Um, <laughs> yeah, I can uh, talk about a couple of different uh, directions that Valerian scholarship is is going in. Um, I think I mentioned uh, we we talked in the chapter um, about uh, because intertextuality is now um, so much more uh, a direction that is able to be taken a lot more study has been turned to that, especially with new technology. Um, so I think that the ability to uh, use uh, searches to determine when authors are using are, are directly uh, using Valerius, um, it will increase the amount of work on intertextual reference in um, from Valerius. Um, there's also a lot for a lot of the, the history of the scholarship um, of on Valerius Flaccus, um, the focus was not on so much on socio-political uh, discussions. It was more on trying to create a workable text that was valuable to study. Uh, for a long for a long time, just coming up with a, a manuscript that wasn't super corrupted was a, a big focus. Um, and so now that we kind of have a better uh, a better, we're, we're kind of a little bit more past that textual criticism stage that was necessary to kind of cement the poet's voice in the first place. Uh, we're more able to look at what he was intending to do or what he ended up doing with that voice. Um, and so there have been recently um, a lot more, uh, a lot more uh, articles and discussions on uh, whether or not it is a positive or negative engagement with the um, politics of the time. Um, and so um, there are there are per, uh, there are evaluations like Stover um, who talks about the the positivity of the of the narrative, um, whereas Bernstein says that it's uh, impossible to create a to create a positive interpretation of it. Um, and then there are of course more balanced perspectives. Um, and then I think that the most, the, 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 the direction that is going to be most beneficial, um, or at least that is uh, seeing a lot more uh, progress is the, the discussions of Valerius's own reception. Um, and so more, uh, more bold interpretations of Valerius's, people seeing Valerius's uh, influence elsewhere um, include uh, Kyle, who has um, who has uh, identified in uh, John of Garland a reference to Valerius Flaccus and, and stuff like that. So um, more more um, reevaluation of previous texts to stop uh, reinforcing that same narrative that oh Valerius just wasn't that important. His his work wasn't uh, studied that deeply. Um, reevaluating that notion uh, is. I think where we're headed uh, for that. Kind of sounds like Tara was throwing things over to me. Can we it keep talking, talking about this, Benjamin, or do we need to move on? Yeah, <laughs> so I, I mean, like, like we've been talking in broad strokes about the reception as uh, in sort of a bit of a theoretical um, register, right? You know, wh what does it what does it mean for a poem to have a uh, rich or or a non-existent reception history. What are the various sort of unexpected factors that might lead to a a, a poem's quote unquote redemption? Can we be suspicious of those narrative things like that? Um, for all of these poets, both of the one both the ones who we know were read and studied continuously, uh, Lucan and Statius, and the ones who sort of disappeared, uh, uh, Silius and Valericus. Valerius, there is a lot of just really basic work to be done 
on various moments of reception. Um, and I think uh, for Stacia's, for instance, there was just a book length and incredibly rich article written purely on medieval commentaries on Stasius's Thebaid, the vast majority of which almost no scholar had looked at at all, um, and every one of which would repay uh, attention, um, both from the perspective of medieval studies uh, and from the perspective of the, of, of the reception of, of Stasius. Uh, same story is true of Lucan. Uh, on the other hand, for authors like Silius and Valerius, I mean, we say they sort of disappeared, um, but all that means is, as far as we know, they weren't really being read, but there are sort of tantalizing moments where it looks like maybe a medieval author might be alluding to something in Valerius. Uh, and and uh, yeah, Sarah mentioned, so a, a book I wrote recently was on a, a 13th century um, poem about Ovid's Metamorphoses, uh, which I am reasonably convinced contains an allusion to Valerius when Valerius, you know, quote unquote, had disappeared. Uh, but there is some evidence that there might have been a manuscript of Valerius kind of kicking around in the region at the time. Um, and I think to some extent, these stories of of non-existent reception can be self-reinforcing because you say, okay, Valerius didn't exist at the time, Stated Silius didn't exist at the time, let's not even look uh, for for evidence of their being read, when if there is evidence, it would be by way of an illusion that you might not notice or something that's not somebody saying, hey, I've got a text of Silius in front of me that I am alluding to, um, right? So I think uh, scholars getting a little bit more adventurous about looking both for the things that are clearly receptions of authors like Lucan and Statius, or possibly receptions. Um, there's just a whole lot of unstudied, uh, unstudied material um, uh, for across several disciplines, um, from ancient studies to medieval studies to Renaissance studies to early modern studies. Um, so yeah, that's that's a wide open area, I think for sure. Yeah, I mean, I I would just add that in general, in classical studies, I think reception studies is a, a sort of huge growth area with, you know, an, an increasingly good reputation. There was a time when if you wrote about the reception of a classical author in some post-classical period or, or some post-classical author, it might be hard to find a publication venue. It might be hard to get people to take you seriously as a classicist. But I think more and more... Uh, uh, you know, classics departments are hiring people who are interested in reception studies, classical publications are publishing articles on the receptions of classical authors, you know, and so we we've in this book talked a lot about the the receptions of these authors, as Kyle says, in sort of theoretical and very broad way. But some of the really interesting work that is being done on any of these authors is a much more detailed and focused kind of reception studies about particular pairings or the reception of particular authors in, in particular periods. Um, you know, Kyle talked about, uh, about uh, uh, and Sarah mentioned briefly, the reception of Valerius Flaccus in medieval literature. One of the really interesting books that, that I read in, uh, in working on, on our book um, uh, about Lucan was Edward Paylight's book on um, on the reception of Lucan in 16th century England, which I thought was just fascinating work, and, and more of that stuff would be great. Right. And I'm, I'm going to do one more, um, I, because it, as uh, getting ready for this, this uh, chat, I was reminding myself of when these poems were rediscovered, and I remembered that... Um, Poggio Bracciolini in 1416 or 1417 was up north of the Alps uh, at a uh, a big debate about who should be pope, and he spent some free time looking for uh, manuscripts in old um, in in old monasteries. And he famously rediscovered Lucretius's poem. Uh, he less famously, at exactly the same time, uh, discovered rediscovered Valerius Flaccus, yeah. rediscovered Silius Italicus, rediscovered Statius's Silvi. Right. And that is a moment in the reception of three of these four authors that are that that, that it was massively important, uh, both obviously for the rediscovery of two of them and the the precipitous change in the opinion about uh, Statius. And as far as I know, nobody's really sat down and talked about, you know, what was that early Renaissance moment like for the for the, the for the um 
for the the field of Flavian studies, essentially. Um, Fascinating. Yeah. Well, it sounds like we have a lot more we could talk about, but hopefully uh, to the scholars listening, that gives you plenty more ideas for new articles or books or venues of study. Uh, and if you are just a casual reader who's been enjoying this, I, I will be um, putting recommendations of translations gathered from this book uh, in the show notes. Uh, so feel free to pick yourself up a copy. Uh, and if this interested you, in the next week or two, we'll be having um, Neil Bernstein on to talk about Claudian uh, and his new translation of that poet and the, the next successor after these. Uh, thank you all for coming on. Thank you. Thank yeah, you. Thank ben. you for having us. Great. And thank you, everyone, for listening. Uh, have a good day.